good morning and good to see you. And uh, if you're visiting, special welcome to you. My name is Brian Haybig. I'm one of the pastors here. That was Tim Udodge, another one of our pastors that was leading us in worship. And if you're visiting, let me catch you up with what we're doing. This summer, we're, we're studying the last 12 books of the Old Testament. They're called the Minor Prophets. And uh, they're not called the Minor Prophets because they're less important. It's just uh, they, they're shorter than the longer prophetic books like Isaiah or Jeremiah, if you've ever heard of those. So uh, we're going through, there's 12 of them. We're going through them week by week. We're just doing one passage and sort of using that to learn more about the book as a whole. So this morning, we're in Jonah. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can just follow in the bulletin. And uh, I'm going to preach on half the book. I don't know if that's wise or not, but we're going to do two chapters. Hopefully this is going to go okay. Um, let me say this before I read it and set it up. One of the really lovely indicators of the truthfulness of Scripture, I'm not going to say proof, I'm going to say indicator of the truthfulness of Scripture is that it lets you see the failures of central figures. And it's uncanny. It does it in the Old Testament and it does it in the New Testament. It'll let you see Abraham blow it. It'll let you see an apostle blow it. Uh, Jonah is centers around this prophet named Jonah, and we're going to watch him fail. He already has in the first half, and he's going to fail some more, and Scripture lets you see it. Um, Jonah's one of the earliest prophets. Now, he's, he's later in the Old Testament as far as the sequence, but he's one of the, the earliest chronologically. This is in the 700s B.C. And, um, and I'll just say one more thing before I read it. This is the only prof- prophetic book where the entirety of it, except for one long song, is, uh, is narrative. And so I'm going to read two chapters. It's not terribly long, but it's very easy to follow because this is not going to be like a long prophetic message. We're, we're going to read an account of something happening in narrative form. So let's give our attention to Jonah. This is chapters 3 and 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them And he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, 
For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor. Nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word And thank you that as we gather together uh, once a week to worship, that we sing and we greet one another and we confess and we hear reassurance and we pray and we um, love on one another, but we hear you. And we of all people need your word, so please open up our ears and our hearts and change us. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I don't have to tell you about um, the shooting in Charleston, in our own state, and I don't have to tell you about the the impact that the response of the the victims' families made on, really, the United States and and probably beyond. And, you know, it was such an awful thing to happen. It was so dark and bad and evil that... Uh, we were hungry for something that was gracious and good, and, and wow, some members of Emmanuel AME gave it to us. Uh, not all the responses to it, them doing that, were positive. Now, most were. Uh, I, I don't know, you probably could tell about things you read or saw. I, you may have seen, this wasn't in that courtroom meeting where Dylan Roof was on the screen and the victim's family spoke to him, but one um, outside the courtroom an MSNBC reporter was covering it, and, um, and he couldn't talk. He got so choked up watching the response of the city, black and white, coming together, even singing. Not protesting, but singing gospel songs. He was moved where he couldn't talk. But there was a writer, um, uh, a woman who writes for the Chronicle of Higher Education, also does some adjunct teaching at American University. She did a piece in the Washington Post, and the title of her piece was Black America Should Stop Forgiving White Racists. Uh, Let me read just a, a, a couple of portions here. Forgiveness has become a requirement for those enduring the, the realities of black death in America. 
Black families are expected to grieve as a public spectacle, to offer comfort, redemption, and a pathway to a new day. The parents of Trayvon Martin, Jordan Davis, Mike Brown, and the widow of Eric Garner were all asked in interviews if they'd forgive the white men who killed their loved one. I did not know that. Every one of them was asked at some point in an interview, will you forgive the attacker? And she goes on to write this. After 9-11, there was no talk about forgiving al-Qaeda, Saddam Hussein, or Osama bin Laden. America declared war, sought blood and revenge, and rushed protective measures into place to prevent future attacks. And she cites a writer for Atlantic Monthly who tweeted right after that, quote, can't remember any campaign to love and forgive in the wake of ISIS beheadings. Last thought, and this is toward her conclusion, she writes, repeatedly forgiving the people who keep murdering us, and she's African-American, repeatedly forgiving the people who keep murdering us is a desperate preemptive move to try to prevent more white harm to black persons, and it doesn't necessarily translate to acceptance. And she ends by putting in a plea for, can we stop forgiving because in our forgiveness we perpetuate? Now, I don't know how that lands with you, and I think after hearing so many, um, after, after so much appreciation for the graciousness and the mercy that was extended from the victims' families, that's pretty jarring to hear. But all she did was articulate something that goes on inside of us. I mean, wouldn't you say that all of us at some point, whether we're willing to say it out loud or not, come to a line where we have to decide, is there a badness that is so bad that if you cross that line of badness, it really is wrong for forgiveness to be extended. Is there an evil that is so evil that if you cross that line of evil, that it is inappropriate to forgive it? It's almost, uh, it's almost validating it if you forgive it. Now, with, with that question in mind, I want to go into the, the, the second half of Jonah because... That question is very much in Jonah's heart. And we're going to see through his responses how he answers it. I'm calling this sermon Infuriating Grace. So let's look at, look at it this way. Let's look at the furious prophet and the gracious God. All right, it should be easy to follow. The furious prophet and, uh, and the gracious God. Up at, in, at the very beginning of our passage, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, you may not have ever read this book. This is sort of a famous Old Testament story. And when I say story, I don't mean fictional myth. I mean, it's, it's an account, but it's, there's, there's narrative. There's a story. This is a famous one. You might have heard about Jonah being thrown overboard and being swallowed by a fish. But the main thing is this. In... The first few verses of Jonah, God comes to him as a prophet and says, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and say to it what I tell you to say to it, because that city's evil has risen up before me. And Jonah doesn't go, and, and it doesn't go well. Now, there's kind of a cartoon way to preach and teach on Jonah. Like where he's kind of a cartoon figure, he's not a real person, and to sort of, you know, kind of make it a, sort of a moralistic way to teach it. Like, well, look, God sent him to go do something, and he didn't do it. And he got swallowed by a fish. So when God tells you to do something, you need to do it, or you might get swallowed by a fish as we pray. And I'd, I'd like to take a little bit more nuanced look at it, because he really is a real man. Um, 
I'm calling him the furious prophet. You've already read the account. You heard he got so angry. Why is he so angry? Why did he not go to Nineveh when God first sent him to Nineveh? And really, in some ways, the, the same information answers both questions. Why didn't he go the first time? Why is he so angry when he does go the second time he's sent? And and I think the way to to answer it more honestly, where he's not a cartoon figure, and this isn't just kind of a neat little Bible story, is to learn a little bit more about the city that he's going to, the city of Nineveh. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but look back up at the top uh, at verse 2, chapter 3, verse 2. God says, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And then look down in verse uh, 11, the last verse in our passage. And this, again, this is God talking. Should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? Now, this is God talking. And when God says you've got a great city, you must have a pretty important city. Now, Nineveh, super ancient. It's mentioned in Genesis chapter 10. Old, 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 old. Went through kind of different ebbs and flows of importance. But this is when it is on the rise. Um, it's, it's located in modern-day Iraq. It's in the, the northern part of Iraq. It's, if, if you remember the name Mosul from the War on Terror, uh, Nineveh is across the Tigris River from Mosul in northern Iraq. Uh, one historian I looked at said at one point, for a 50-year period, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. Here's the main thing to know about it. It's the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And, um, and this is going to be important, not only for this morning, but two weeks from now. And I'll say more about that in a second. But it had an entire culture of violence. And I'm going to say more about that in detail in two weeks. But let me just say this for, for, for now. As its military grew, as its importance grew, as it kind of got hungrier and hungrier for, for more region, it didn't just conquer areas. But its conquests were known for, th- like, you know, known for beheadings and burning people alive, uh, dismembering them. If you ever get to London and you go to the British Museum and you're in the section with Assyrian stuff and Babylonian stuff, you can see reliefs and carvings where this is depicted. That was the culture. So we're not talking about just a a hungry, greedy power, the superpower of its day, but it's an entire culture of violence. Now, I want you to think about what that means for Jonah. Because God says, go to that city Nineveh, that great city, and say to it what, what I'm telling you to say. And you think about from a Christian perspective in 2015, if God came to us and audibly said, I want you to go to this place, I want you to get over to this place in Iraq or Syria where there's a group of, of ISIS officials. I want you to go to them and I want you to tell them about Jesus. Would you do it? Like if God audibly told you to. Because what, what's the track record? You're going to be beheaded and not with a guillotine. You're going to be burned alive. You're going to be shot in the head. Jonah knows if he goes to Nineveh, it's that, either something like that is going to happen. This is a city with a kind of first-class riches and cultural, you know, cultural amenities and the ethos of ISIS. Either that's going to happen to him or they'll change. Now, how does the account go? 
first time he didn't go, God gets his attention, sends him back. He goes the second time. Here's how it unfolds. Look in verse 4, up at the top of chapter 3. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and none of us shall be overthrown. And it's interesting. Maybe that's just an abbreviated form of what he said, but he didn't really go in and proclaim good news. I mean, he kind of grabbed the mic and said, All right, forty days, and none of us toast. Thanks for coming. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Unbelievable. This man walks, he goes a day's journey into the city, which is some kind of, which is a reflection on the scale of the city, and just calls out what God said for him to do, and the people immediately respond. Word gets to the king of Nineveh, he's never named. He calls for a fast. Fast, put on sackcloth. Animals put on sackcloth. Maybe God will relent from what he's going to send. And then what happens? There's no assurance that he will relent, but what happens? Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, nerdy moment. There's this Hebrew word that runs throughout the prophecy of Jonah. And it's a Hebrew word that can mean different things depending on the context. The word is ra'ah. In some contexts, it can mean evil, it can mean disaster, it can mean just you know, like bad stuff, bad news. It's all through the book of Jonah. And just in that account, here's where it shows up. The king of Nineveh says, look, everybody here needs to humble themselves. Everybody, every person, every animal. Fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And maybe this God will relent from sending this ra'ah if we turn from our ra'ah. So turn from your evil ways. And then in verse 10 it says, God looks and the people of Nineveh actually do turn from their ra'ah. So he relents from sending the ra'ah. He wasn't going to send evil, but he was going to send something that if you were a Ninevite would feel evil. He was going to send a massive disaster. And then what does it say at the beginning of chapter 4? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And in Hebrew it says this, To Jonah, when they turned, when they listened to, to his prophecy, and God relented from sending the disaster, to Jonah it was ra'ah. It was as bad to him when he saw disaster withheld as it was bad to God as he watched the wickedness and the violence of Nineveh. That's what it did to Jonah's insides. And he ends up answering our question. Here's why I didn't go the first time, God. And here's why I'm angry. Look in verse 2 of chapter 4. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Now think about this. If, if we could go to Jonah and ask him, well, if, if you know that God is gracious, and you know that God is merciful, what kind of people is grace and mercy for? 
Okay, I don't know that this is the case, but I strongly suspect that if he were honest, he would say what we would say. Grace and mercy is for reasonable sinners. I know I'm a sinner, but God's grace and mercy is for impatience and anger with family and occasional cussing. They behead people. They behead children. They plunder God's people. It's not for them. I don't know, if you, if you were here last week, I don't know if you noticed this or not, we had a quote on the front of the bulletin. It's by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Um, he was a writer. He actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature. He was in uh, Soviet labor camps for, I think, at least eight years. And here's what he wrote one time. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? You know, the Middle Earth way of saying this would be, wouldn't life be more straightforward if there really were orcs? You know, because you don't have to pray for orcs, you don't have to bless orcs, you don't have to evangelize orcs, you don't set up nonprofits for orcs, you just kill orcs. You kill as many orcs as you can, the more the better. The more you kill, the better the world is. There are no orcs. All there are are human beings. Every human being is every other human being's neighbor. Every human being bears the image of God. Every believer in Jesus Christ in this room bears the image of God. Every figure in ISIS on the atrocious video bears the image of God. Every man and woman and child in Nineveh bore the image of God. And we are quite a mixed bag. And you know, I, I really had to sit with this for a while because the question that I was originally going to pose to us is, hey, are we upset about someone else's sin more than our own? But I don't know that's fair. I mean, if, if someone came in and pillaged and burned and raped in your hometown, of, of course that's dominant in your mind. How could it not be? You're going to think about that more than like your own struggle with lying. Sure. But the question I would ask is, what, what quantity of time do we think about others' evil, others' disobedience, others' badness versus our own? That the line of good and evil cuts through every human heart. Jonah is like us. He is furious because there are people who have crossed a line where they have been so wicked, so violent, so dark and twisted that grace and mercy is not for people like that. And God extended grace and mercy to people patently like that. And it made him mad. I mean, we have enemies. That can be ISIS. That can be an ex-spouse. That could be someone who absolutely just did a number on me in business. Or it could be a public enemy of the Lord Jesus' church. We have enemies. 
what really is at the root when Jesus is so clear, pray for them, bless them. You know, on, on it, more than one occasion in, in, uh, in the worship of downtown Prez, we've prayed for some known enemies of Christianity, known enemies of the church. Jihadi John, Mohammed Imwazi, this man who's beheaded someone on video, more than one person, hates Christianity, hates the church. We've prayed for him by name. Some of you said that you appreciated it. A lot, most people didn't say anything about it. A few people indicated, I'm not crazy about that. Listen, I get that. I get that. There's something very deep inside of me that doesn't want to pray for him. But do you know that we've got to keep praying? When the king and the head of the church says, pray for your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Bless and do not hate. Then we need to bless and not hate. And some of you may hear me saying, so what, we shouldn't have an army? We shouldn't have a military? We just got through studying Romans. Romans talks about God gives to the governing authorities a sword, and that means things like law enforcement and military. But that's not what we're talking about right now. What we're talking about right now is our hearts. Whether that's toward a people group or an ideology or an individual in my life. Whose sin infuriates me so that I can no longer see that person as a fellow sinner? But you've got a furious prophet. You've got, a, you've got the gracious God. When I say God's gracious, does that mean God has no anger? No. Did you, did you catch what the king of Nineveh said? We better do this because God is angry. Maybe he'll relent from his anger. And if you, if, if you think that I'm presenting a pushover God this morning... Come back in two weeks when we get to Nahum, which are the, the really clean page of your Bible. Because a later generation of Ninevites turned back to their wickedness, back to their violence, and God judges them. It's an oracle of woe. No, God's not a pushover God. But what is He? And this, this, is a, this is amazing to me. Look back at chapter 4, verse 2. Jonah verbalizes the problem. I'm putting air quotation marks around the problem. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Where did he get that? Because that phraseology keeps showing up in the Bible. Gracious, compassionate, abounding in mercy, slow to anger. says it over and over and over. Where did Jonah get that? You know, do you know where he got it? You know where the first, the first place you see that bundle of phrases? Is when the Israelites, after all that God had done for them, flipped out and make a golden calf and worship it and say, here are our gods that delivered us from the Egyptians. Just atrocious makes Moses so angry that he breaks the tablets, goes back up on the mountain. He's so exasperated, he's so weary, he says, God, I want to see you. God says, if you see my face, it'll kill you, but you can see my back. He puts Moses in a safe place in the mountain, and God passes by, and God describes himself. God describes himself on the heels of his people 
just being so hard-headed and stiff-necked and bad. And he says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining His love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet He does not clear the guilty. He visits the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. No, He's not a pushover. Yes, He's just. But He leads by saying, I am compassionate and gracious, and it takes me a long, long time to get angry with you. That keeps being echoed in the Scriptures. And you've got Jonah saying to God, that's why I left the first time, because I knew that you would haul off and be who you are. That you would, you would haul off and be gracious to them when what this world needs is a nuclear strike on Nineveh. You know, he kind of set up his little man cave outside of the city to watch it, to watch the nuclear strike, and it didn't come. It made him mad because God had dared to be who he is gracious and compassionate. And and if you want a window into what that looks like, look at the end of the passage, the end of the book. Um, When Jonah sets up his little booth, there's this plant that grows. I mean, this is Assyria. It's the Middle East. Gives him some shade. He's very pleased about how this worked out. And then God sends something to attack the plant, and the plant dies. And and he's, he's just coming unhinged. He's angry about the worm and the plant and the city and the whole deal. And God comes to him. This is amazing. Every person in Jonah, in the book of Jonah, has an experience with the grace of God. The sailors on the boat where he tried to escape, the people of Nineveh, the king of Nineveh. But this is God's grace to Jonah. Here you are and you're so angry. When God comes to someone and says, do you do well to be angry? I would say the best answer is not, yes, I do well to be angry. Probably the best answer is, sorry. Do you do well to be angry? I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And God says, uh, you got very upset about this plant. Lived in a day, died in a day, very, very upset about it. Should not I be concerned and pity 120,000 human beings. And this is, this is amazing. Not just that, but their cattle. You know, because if you'll dismember people and behead people and burn them alive and skin them alive, you probably don't have many chapters for people for the ethical treatment of animals in your city. But God has compassion on all that He's made, and I'm concerned for all these people who bear my image, even the creatures under their care. Shouldn't I do that, Jonah? Should I not pity them? And and can you believe that God says to him, Jonah, they don't know their right from their left. And I could picture being in his shoes, if I can say that, thinking, they know exactly what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. When they conquer and steal and pillage and dismember and behead, they know what they're doing. But from God's perspective... They don't understand what they're really doing. This is God. And if that seems superfluous to you, think about around 800 years later when God the Father 
sent God the Son and stretched him out on a Roman cross. And right as these Roman soldiers are about to nail him into it, what does he pray? Father, forgive them. Don't Roman soldiers know what they're doing when they crucify a person? Of course they know what they're doing when they crucify a person. But from the Son of God's perspective, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. These are lost people being lost. That's a godly way of looking at our world. That doesn't mean there's not justice. doesn't mean that the governing authorities don't bear the sword. But there's such a thing as lost people being lost. Where does that leave us? Well, a couple of things. I mean, just one thing to anyone in the room and then one particular to Christians. I don't know everyone in the room. I'd love to, but I don't know everyone in the room. don't know your background. don't know your story. But it's just very, very easy based on your history to think, I have crossed a line. It's not me saying about someone else, that's too bad, that's too dark, that's too willful for God to forgive it. I'm saying it about myself. I did this to my family. I did this with sexuality. I did this with my body. I did this with my anger. I did this with my hatred. And I messed all these people's lives up. I've crossed the line, it's too bad. Do you see in Jonah God letting us see I can have mercy on anyone who turns to me? And Jesus actually said this, that at the final judgment, men from Nineveh were going to rise up and look at some of the cities of Jesus' day and say, we repented when Jonah came into our city. We repented. And you mean that God became man and came into your city and you didn't repent? Jesus said the men of Nineveh will rise at the judgment to speak against those who heard the preaching of Jesus and didn't turn. And that's a warning, but there's also a great hope here. Are, are you the person who sort of heard about Jesus but you've never turned to Him? Today is the day when you can turn to Him And you'll find out not just intellectually, but in your experience that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and He's abounding in love and He relents from sending disaster. Turn to Him. If you don't know what that means, get on your knees and say to Him, Help me. Help me. Cleanse me. Whatever it means for you to rescue me and redeem me and clean me, please do that. Because to my way of thinking, I've crossed a line. But uh, I would say this to, to, uh, to the Christians here. If you're here and you do know that you're a Christian, you profess faith in Jesus Christ, um, there's something that we need to say to each other once in a while to keep our sanity, and it's this. Forgiveness is a form of suffering. And for God to forgive us. He didn't do it with a magic wand. It, it was the very suffering and then resurrection of His own Son. Is His one and only Son. Uh, one of those comments made by the victim's family was the mother of a young man named Tawanza. I believe Tawanza Sanders. And what, not 48 hours after these shootings, she looked at her son's 
we're almost certain, killer. We have to say that. I mean, he's on the video and he's confessed to it. She says to him on the screen, we welcomed you into our Bible study. You have killed some of the most beautiful people I have ever known. Every every fiber of my body hurts. And how she ends is saying, we would say to you what we said that night. We enjoyed you. And may God have mercy on you. That is godliness. Because that is like God. And our calling, the way of the cross that leads to glory, is to follow Jesus. The suffering of forgiveness. And then the new earth, where the world's not like that anymore. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it comes naturally to us to think ourselves better than the next to think that others are the great wickedness and evil and problem. It comes naturally for us to hold grudges and to hate, to think that mercy is for us and our friends and not for our enemies. Have mercy on us and change us by your gracious and compassionate dealing with us, your great patience. May we extend to our neighbors and our enemies how you've dealt with us. How can you be so loving, Father? But thank you that you are. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.